Welcome to Blackbird episode number 13. My name is James, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by the great independent journalist Jeremy Hammond. Jeremy has been providing us with great coverage of the pandemic for the last year and primarily on the current state of the pandemic, the vaccine and all that stuff. So I anticipate this will be a great conversation and you will learn a lot and you will enjoy it. So with that, here is my interview with Jeremy Hammond. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, sure. So I've been, uh, you've been kind of making the rounds lately on Tom Woods and I think twice on PQ. So um, I'm glad you uh, took the time to step, uh, stop by here today. Um, why don't you, for those who listen to my show, but don't listen to Tom and Pete for some reason, uh, go ahead and introduce yourself. Sure. Well, uh, my name is Jeremy Hammond. I'm an independent journalist, researcher, political analyst, author of several books, including Obstacle to Peace, the U.S role in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, I've been doing journalism uh, independently uh, really since the Iraq war um, and focus on foreign policy for most of the years I've been doing this, but uh, around in 2012, um, my son was born. And so I really began researching the vaccine issue, shifted my focus, uh, became cognizant of just what an important issue that is and how much people are being misinformed about about that topic and public vaccine policy. Um, and so I shifted my focus to that. And then of course, last year with the COVID-19 pandemic and the authoritarian lockdown responses, uh, I've been focusing for the past year, my work entirely on that uh, problem and uh, confronting the, the, the totalitarian threat we're faced with. Um, so yeah, that's just a little bit about my background and the focus of my work. And really I specialize in exposing state propaganda. So I essentially say, this is what we're being told uh, here are the sources that they cite to support their arguments. And then, you know, here's what the sources really say <laughs> and, and, and this kind of thing. Um, and so these are the conclusions we can draw about how we're being lied to. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that really is the focus of my work is just exposing dangerous, dangerous, harmful state propaganda that's intended to uh, manufacture our consent for uh, uh, harmful policies. I think one of the biggest criticisms that people kind of in our camp get is, uh, at least, you know, on Twitter, is that we're not scientists. So why should people listen to us when the when, you know, quote, the experts are saying the exact opposite of what um, communicators like you are saying and uh, regurgitators like me are saying? What do you use to counter that assertion that you're not a scientist? It's really simple. I say, well, just look at my sources. I'm citing scientific, peer-reviewed scientific literature, for example, in my articles. Um, so, you know, don't take my word for anything. Check the sources. This is what the science actually has to say. And and, and this is really, again, just to give an example of what I do. You know, for example, uh, I've written a major series of, of articles on the on the flu shot, and um, it, it really what kicked that off was a New York Times article in which the claim was made that a, a 2010 Cochrane review. Uh, Cochrane Collaboration is a prestigious international group that specializes in a type of study called meta-analysis. Um, citing this 2010 Cochrane review saying that the, 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 that the review concluded that the science shows that um, the flu shot confers a, a great public health benefit. In fact, that's not their conclusion at all. Their conclusion was that 
the, the two fundamental assumptions upon which the CDC's flu shot recommendation is based are unsupported by scientific evidence. And they went so far in their criticism of the CDC as to accuse it of, of deliberately misrepresenting the science to support its policy. So this is, so, you know, you can, I'm not, yeah, I'm not a scientist, but I can read the scientific liter literature and see what it actually has to say. So that's one point. Um, another point is that, yeah, well, I'm not a scientist, but scientists aren't independent journalists. Hmm. You know, scientists, uh, you know, aren't doing what I'm doing. They're not, they're not approaching the topics um, from, you know, kind of an outside of the box approach. You know, they're all indoctrinated into their belief system. Uh, and, and I don't, I, I have the benefit of not having been through that indoctrination process. So I think that's another way to look at it entirely. What, uh, what would that indoctrination look like? Like, I mean, not every single epidemiologist is on the same page as uh, the sort of narrative pushers. Um, right. So how, how do they get through school and still come out independent thinkers? Well, that's it. I think that's that's a challenge for people, and so and many people do manage to do that. But um, I, 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 this is true for education in general. I don't think it's. I'm mm. not specifically referring only to, you know, like medical school or something like this. But I mean, you can talk to doctors and ask. I mean, I've had many times doctors say to me that, or just say publicly that, you know, the education they get on vaccines is is really minimal. I mean, it. it, it we're, we have this as you know, as parents. So I'm a father. So as parents were told that, you know, we, we can trust our doctors, doctors know what they're talking about. And in my experience, this is, this is completely untrue for, yeah, I would say, you know, the majority of doctors uh, and doctors will tell you, they don't get education on, on vaccines. What they learn is what we learned in like high school history that, you know, vaccines are wonderful. And, you know, they, they eliminated smallpox from the planet and, and eliminated polio and, and they're wonderful inventions and they're safe and effective and and that's it and this is the essentially what doctors get in in, in medical school and, um and so you know and then doc i mean that most doctors don't do their own research they're not digging deeply into the medical literature and this is not i'm talking about vaccines specifically because this is an area where i really focus my work mm -hmm. but it's true broadly generally i mean another example is my experience trying to deal with uh, leaky gut and di having to diagnose myself uh, because the doctors that I was encountering were completely ignorant. And, you know, like I would bring it up and say, well, I have leaky gut. And they would literally mock me because they didn't, they, they weren't aware that this exists. And they think it's some kind of like pseudoscientific, you know, nonsense. And it's, I would tell them like, just go to pubmed.gov, <laughs> which is a government, um, NIH runs the, this website, it's a government website. And it's a database of the, the peer-reviewed literature, and you can go in there and do searches. And, and, and a lot of times, full articles are available. If not, you can at least read the abstracts. And you can go in there and do a search for leaky gut or intestinal hyperpermeability, as it's also known. And it's completely uncontroversial <laughs> in the literature. But, you know, these doctors were, were, were totally ignorant. And not just that, their arrogance, you know, that, they, that they, their attitude toward me was so arrogant that they think they know things and are really totally ignorant. And this is, so it's just, they don't, these doctors are not spending their time like keeping up to date with the scientific literature. Mm -hmm. they, they learn what they learned in medical school and then they go on and they run their practices and they just do things the way they've always done them. And, um, and, and this is, I think, broadly true for, for doctors. Now there are exceptions. There are, there are doctors out there who, who read the literature, who studied their, um, you know, the developments in science and, 
And these are the doctors who are speaking out against the medical establishment and, and its way of doing things. So um, if there's really a kind of a gap uh, between what medical pr practice is in terms of standard of care in the medical establishment and then what the science says, and, and really they're, they're practicing medicine a decade or two or three behind the science. And this yeah, is observable. I, I mean, you can observe this. You can go into literature and see it. I asked my doctor about hormone therapy or something, something like that. It, you, you, the, the stuff that, the stuff that uh, like Sandra Summers, I think, is that her name? The Suzanne Summers, the uh, stuff that she was promoting um, a few years ago and probably still does, uh, that was really catching on for men. And so I asked my doctor about it and he said, he said, well, I think it's really good pseudoscience. Um, and I think this was a few years ago and I, I'm pretty sure it's become a little more mainstream since then. Uh, I wonder what he would say if I asked him, you know, at my next physical. Um, so you, in addition to talking about vaccines, which is a very hot button issue, you also kind of take the other side. Like, for instance, you a couple of months ago wrote an article about whether the virus had been isolated. Um, we hear it in a lot of conspiratorial slash libertarian circles that the coronavirus has not been isolated, and so we can't really know anything about it. Um, what, is, what what's the what's the reality there? Yeah, there's this is the one of the the challenges I think for news consumers is that there is misinformation from both sides. Um, of course, the preponderance. I want to I want to preface what my answer to that by stating this that the preponderance of misinformation, whether we're talking about vaccines or foreign policy or or the COVID nineteen pandemic, uh, is is coming from the government and the mainstream media, period. Yep. Um, but, but that's not to say that there's not misinformation coming from the other side of things. And there is, and, and this is why it's a challenge to, um, you know, really, I think, make progress uh, for, you know, the, the whole freedom movement is being held back um, because, um, you know, false claims coming out of the, the movement do harm the movement because it legitimizes criticisms that, you know, there's, we're spreading misinformation. And, and so I, I really try to take a more objective approach and, and, and criticize both sides, wherever I see the misinformation coming from, um, you know, that's, I'm going to, I'm going to challenge it. Um, so, you know, with the, with the, the isolation question, um, there's, there's people out there, there's a handful of, of voices who are speaking very loudly with this claim that, that the virus has not been isolated. Um, but what they're all they're really doing is it's just really a semantic game. It's it, this is a really a nuisance claim to me um, because it's such a distraction from real issues. And, and they're just saying, well, it's never been isolated in the dictionary sense of the word, like as though it was possible for scientists to somehow like take a, a virus particle and, and suspend it in a vacuum so that it's completely separated from anything else. I mean, this is, you know, maybe someday we'll have that technology, but you know, we're, we're, we're stuck with the technology we have today. And so, um, and so they say that, you know, the use of cell culture is not isolation, that any, 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 any isolation of a virus that involves the use of cell culture is, is not isolation because you're not <laughs> suspending it in a vacuum, basically. It's not isolation in the dictionary sense of the word. But, you know, scientists use the word isolation in this very specific way when they're talking about um, you know, identifying viruses and, and, you know, like taking a sample from a patient and then and then identifying a virus within that sample. 
So, do you uh, think so, it, so the gold standard is, is the use of cell culture. I mean, this is the gold standard of virus isolation. And so, I mean, these people are essentially, if you follow their, their argument through to their, its logical conclusion, they're saying that no virus has ever been isolated. No virus has ever been proven to exist. And so there's this kind of a reductio ad, ad absurdum argument that you can make to, to, to really dismiss this nonsense. It's been isolated. It's been isolated tens of thousands of times in whole gen genome sequence by scientists all over the world. There's a database where they publish the, the genome sequences of isolates that they've obtained from patients all over the world. And there's a, this database they, they use it to track. And this is how they can track evolution of the virus as it passages through the human population and they identify uh, unique variants and things like this. I mean, it, the claim that it doesn't exist is just such utter nonsense and it's so harmful because uh, it really does legitimize um, the other, the other point of view that mis misinformation is being spread. Um, does that relate to PCR testing as well? Uh, not directly. Uh, people get confused between like yeah. PCR testing and virus isolation and whole genome sequencing. These are th three different things. Um, but it, it does relate in the sense that the reason I think like my own readers, a lot of them are confused about the difference between these things is because uh, they're being conflated by these people who are arguing that that the virus doesn't exist. And they're the, they're the ones conflating these issues and not making it clear to readers what the differences are. Uh, and so people think, oh, well, the PCR tests, they don't detect the, the, the whole virus. They only detect, you know, uh, like RNA fragments and therefore it's not isolation. Well, no, that's not, it's not, <laughs> PCR tests are not how isolation is done. Uh, that, you know, I have readers who are legitimately, legitimately um, confused about, about these things. Um, so the PCR tests are, you know, intended to, really be confirmatory diagnostic tests. So they're not supposed to be used as a sole basis of, uh, of mm -hmm. diagnosis. And there, you know, there's um, there's definitely legitimate criticisms and this is a big issue. So um, the fact that, you know, people who don't even have symptoms are getting tested and they're getting positive results and they're being counted as COVID-19 cases. And this is, a, this is, this is really institutionalized scientific fraud because uh, just because you have a positive test doesn't mean you have COVID-19. It, it doesn't mean you have an infection. And there's a difference between infection and disease. You can have an infection, but not have developed the disease. The disease is the syndrome, the symptoms that are caused by the infection. And that's the CDC's own definition of, of disease, right? Yeah, his clinical disease is, is like is defined as is the symptom, the manifested symptoms. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so this is a real problem. And, and of course, and then, you know, it's compounded when they're, when they're doing the COVID-19 death counts because, you know, it, depending on jurisdiction, but I think broadly it's people are, you know, other states are doing it the same way they're doing it here in Michigan, where if you have a positive PCR test and then you die, <laughs> you're counted as a COVID-19 death and it's just automatic. And this is the way they've been, that, that, that the, the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services has instructed people to count the numbers of COVID-19 deaths. Whereas you contrast that with the vaccine de deaths, you know, occurring in, well, vaccine related deaths occurring like in, in nursing homes and things where they go in with these mass vaccination campaigns, they vaccinate a bunch of elderly people and, and then, you know, large numbers of them uh, end up dying very, very shortly after the vaccination. And they say, well, this is a coincidence. Which it, <laughs> it, it, it very well might be. But it very might well, well be, but you <laughs> notice it too. My point is that there's two different standards. So if, if you if you die, and, it would and there's a temporal association with the vaccination that, right. that's automatically assumed to be a coincidence. Whereas if you die after having received a positive PCR test, that's automatically assumed to have been you died of COVID-19. 
Right. And the, and the truth, I mean, once you're in a nursing home, like the, the lifespan is only a few months on average from what I understand. Right. In fact, I'm pretty sure that the, um, the average age of, of, you know, deaths caused by COVID-19 deaths is, is (laughs) over the average age of life expectancy. You know, I mean, this tells us a lot about, about the numbers of deaths and, and, you know, what really is, you know, it'd be interesting to look at um, uh, years of life lost as a, as a metric and then comparing that to years of life lost as a result of the lockdown measures. Because, of course, the lockdown, the global lockdowns are causing excess deaths among children, among infants, uh, you know, infant mortality, uh, deaths from starvation, uh, according to UN estimates. And so if, if we, you know, compare... Yeah, even if we give the lockdown advocates all of their assumptions and say, oh, okay, yeah, that, that these lockdowns spared X and X, you know, X number of lives uh, from, from COVID-19. If we, even if we accept all those arguments and then compared, um, you know, the, the years of life lost to the years of life lost from estimates of, of excess mortality as a consequence of the lockdowns, I think it's very easy to make the case that the, the lockdowns are doing far more harm than good. And of course, we don't have to accept their their assumptions and their claims because uh, the, the scientific evidence is, is very clear at this point that, that the lockdowns really are not effective. They're not effective at all. And, and there's studies on this. I mean, there's, there's study published in the Lancet finding that there's no association between the, you know, the lockdown measures and, and, uh, and, and mortality. And uh, there, there's numerous studies showing that there's just no association between the lockdowns, especially the more extreme lockdown measures like stay-at-home orders and, and uh, business closures. There's no association between those measures and, and better outcomes. What about masks? What do we know about their efficacy um, and what are we being told that's not true? Well, we're being t- what we're being told that's not true is that science supports the use of mandatory masking. This is false. That's a, this is a, a, a non-evidence-based policy. What, what science does support is the use of masks, certain types of masks in certain types of situations. So, um, you know, and, and there's different types of studies on masks. Uh, most of them for SARS-CoV-2 are observational studies. So they're just looking retrospectively at, at data. Um, there's also mechanistic studies where, you know, that you have just a theoretical kind of uh, mechanistic approach where, well, yes, yeah, so if you have a mask on and you cough and, and it's going to catch the larger droplets. And so, uh, you know, it's going to, it's going to prevent those from, from being spread, um, you know, to somebody else. And so, you know, you have these types of arguments, but then there's a difference between, you know, like theoretical kind of uh, effectiveness and where you assume, well, because of the function of a mask, that therefore it's going to have this effect um, in, in real world data. So what's really interesting is that the randomized controlled trials, which of course is, you know, that's considered the gold standard of evidence. Uh, the, the RCTs don't show, don't show that masks are effective. And this is true even like in the healthcare setting. Oh, wow. With, with, with not just like cloth masks, but like with medical masks, surgical masks, and even with uh, N95 respirators, where they show that respirators, uh, you know, randomized control trials show that respirators aren't more effective than, than surgical masks. So it, there's really counterintuitive uh, data on masks and in, in where what, what we would expect perhaps 
in terms of effectiveness, it doesn't appear to be the case in real world, real world settings. And there's explanations for this. I mean, the, for masks to actually work, you have to wear them properly for one. And <laughs> most people, <laughs> most people don't do that, even if they know how. Um, it, it's you know, it's all kinds of. And then you know, there's a, another issue is like when you actually do uh, cough or, or you know, like sneeze into a mask uh, it doesn't actually contain the particles it just kind of blows them out the side or it just it shoots them off in different directions um it, there's so you know it, the evidence is is there in terms of yes if you are in a situation where pro, you know prolonged close contact with others is unavoidable yes it makes sense to wear a mask in that circumstance if you know if uh you know just out of courtesy to other people this kind of thing um you know, just as, as source control, where the idea is that, um, you know, the, the person is it's not the mask isn't. isn't well, now they're saying that the masks also protect you. But, the, you know, they're changing all you know decades of science on masks yeah, just yeah, in the yeah. past several months. Or, you know, all the science is suddenly being turned upside down. So they're making this claim now that, you know, this cloth, the cloth mask will protect you, too. Um, but, you know, the, the, really, the idea was that it's used as source control, meaning that the wearer is protecting other people from, you know, yourself. So, um, but, but you know, the idea that we all have to wear masks everywhere we go is completely nonsense. I mean, it, it, if you're in a situation where you can avoid close contact with others, it's, it's completely pointless to wear a mask. Right. And close contact doesn't just mean being within, within six feet of people, right? It means direct face-to-face contact for longer than, I think, like 10 minutes, right? Yeah, it was uh, CDC. I think actually changed this like last month or fairly recently. Or but yeah, yeah it, I mean, for most of last year, the, the definition of close contact, CDC's definition was, um, yeah, being within six feet of someone for more than 15 minutes. Right. So it's not like reaching past someone at the grocery store. It's not, yeah, not like, oh, I walked past somebody in the aisle and they were five feet away from me. No. Yeah, um, this is nonsense. Right. And that that's where I think that's, because I don't use public transportation and my job is remote anyway, I don't go to an office. Um, my experience with this is the only time I would ever, the the only time I ever wear a mask is when I obviously feel like I don't need to. So I'm, I'm a little more resistant to it than maybe someone who is riding the bus every day. I mean, yeah, same thing here. Exactly. Uh, you know, if, if I did use public transportation and I was in a crowded subway or something, I would wear a mask. I mean, just not because I feel it's necessary, but just because I know people are scared and, and it would sure. just give them comfort. And it's just as a matter of respect and, uh, you know, courtesy, I, I would do so. I don't have a problem with that. The problem I have is with these mandated masks where, you know, you're not given a choice and you're, you're, you're threatened with punishment or, you know, like here in Michigan, the government governor before her orders were revoked by the Supreme court, you know, was, was threatening fines and punishment for, for not wearing masks and things. Um, you know, this is what I have a problem with. And then the idea that, you know, like I, I'm supposed to wear a mask to go to the grocery store here where I live. I mean, it, it's not as though I go into the grocery store and it's you know like trying to get through a herd of cattle or something. I mean, it, it, we just don't live in that. It, our area is not that populated. You know, the stores are not crowded. I can easily go through the store and check out and, and never even encounter someone. You know, I mean, it's ridiculous. The idea that I'm supposed to just always wear a mask even in, a situ- in situations where it's completely pointless and absurd and an act of irrational fear. I will not act out of irrational fear. I, w- I refuse. I live here in Minnesota where they're trying to legislate masks because the governor, the governor in his, you know, 
uh, benevolence wants to give up some of his emergency powers. And so he's asking the legislature to <laughs> enact them instead. Uh, and the, the legislation as written says that um, masks are required in all public spaces until the CDC removes the, the recommendation for masks. Do you think that that's ever going to happen? I mean, what, what, what do you predict? And, you know, I won't hold you to it is the future of masking post pandemic. Oh, I think it's become, you know, if it ever was about public health, I think that rationale has shifted to the point where now it's more about control. I think it was about control from the beginning, you know, largely, but now I think it's about total control. They, 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 they are claiming these authorities that they don't have, you know, the authority to, to, to declare by fiat, which businesses are, you know, essential or non-essential, whose labors are non-essential in a society. I mean, these types of power, I mean, this is pure authoritarianism. I mean, this is totalitarianism. It's just, it's just such, it's clear as day. They, they cannot possibly have such authority. I mean, the only legitimate authority that any government could possibly have is derived from the consent of the governed. I mean, this is a basic principle mm-hmm. of, of the United States, uh, you know, government. Uh, and, and so when did we ever consent to, to, you know, when did, when did we, the people ever give the government the authority to by fiat close businesses or, you know, say, dictate to us, you know, what we should do in terms of our own health and what, you know, what attire we should wear and what we should put into our bodies in terms of vaccines. And, uh, you know, that, and this is really the fundamental problem here is that our our fundamental human rights are under direct assault uh and this was this was true before the pandemic and, and the right to informed consent uh had been under you know there's a, a war already being waged on our right to informed consent before the pandemic and it just escalated uh, above and beyond with the pandemic in fact before the pandemic i, I was very confident that that you know the health freedom movement we, i mean we were winning the the, the argument uh just because we have the facts on our side uh, and you can easily debate, you know, these false claims and, you know, like easily go to the CDC's website and show how, you know, the the claims that the CDC makes about certain claims about vaccine safety are contradicted by its own sources. I mean, you can just example after example, you can show this it's demonstrable. Um, And so we were, I think quite handily winning that battle and that war for our freedom. Um, despite the setbacks in terms of, you know, increasing numbers of states, you know, because they're getting, you could see that they were getting more desperate in terms of trying to remove exemptions from vaccines and, you know, even getting California, even, even going after medical exemptions and saying, well, no, we're going to interfere in the doctor patient relationship and say, you know, the doctor is not, you know, when the doctor, I mean, Richard Pan, who who was like the, the leader, you know, the guy like the main guy behind this legislation in california came out and sat and he wrote this in a peer-reviewed article in an article uh in, in a peer-reviewed journal saying that um you know the doctors who were writing vaccine exemptions are not practicing medicine they're performing an administrative function in service to the state and this is his view of medicine and the role of in his view this is the proper role of doctors and this is completely and utterly insane I mean, we must stop this totalitarianism and now, I mean, now you're seeing it with uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic and, you know, the, the lockdown measures and then with, uh, and of course, the end game of the lockdown measures has from the very beginning been mass vaccination. Mm-hmm. This has always been their exit strategy. Um, and, and, and of course, you know, the implication of that is that mandates are coming. 
And so many of us have been, have been fighting that war for, for long before the pandemic was even here uh, and we're still at it. Um, but, you know, I think people, I think one good thing that's coming out of this is people are becoming awakened to what's really happening. I mean, they've seen, I mean, all the stuff we've been talking about for years in the health freedom movement. I mean, people are really starting to see it with their own eyes. I mean, in the past, we would say like, well, the, the FDA vaccine approval process is totally inadequate. And, you know, like it, it, just because a, a vaccine is FDA approved doesn't mean it's been proven to be safe and effective. And, you know, and, and people would just kind of like dismiss that and, and, and not really pay any attention to it just because they it's just, you know, state religion, people just have this faith in government um, <clears throat> and a vaccine religion as a, as a subsect of the state religion. But, but now, I mean, I think the masses are awakened to, to, I mean, they can see it with their own eyes. I mean, they're reading in the media every day, how, you know, these vaccines have been scientifically proven safe and effective when the clinical trial, the phase three clinical trials still haven't even been completed yet. <laughs> you know, when they have it, they are not FDA authorized. I mean, sorry, they're not FDA approved. They're authorized for emergency use, which is different. Emergency use authorization is for experimental products. Um, and so, I mean, and of course, everyone can see with their own eyes. I mean, obviously, we, we lack uh, data on long-term effects. We have no data on long-term safety of these vaccines or long-term effectiveness of these vaccines. And so, you know, everything we've been saying for so many years, I mean, people can see it now. It's just right out in the open where uh, all the problems we've been talking about, you know, with the government say, oh, well, they're safe. We, we, we have, you know, uh, preliminary data from a phase three trial that we can, based on that, we can we can declare, hmm. you know, authoritatively and conclusively that they're, they're safe. I mean, this is such nonsense. You cannot, you know, absent, absent randomized placebo controlled trials, comparing long-term health outcomes, including all-cause mortality between vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals, any claim of safety is completely meaningless. Generally speaking, how long is long-term? Well, it could, it could take years for effects mm. of, of vaccines to, to manifest. You know, um, it, it give, I'll give an example of what I'm talking about. There's something in, in the literature. I mean, with the short-term trials are designed... To, to look at, you know, they, they look, they're looking for what are known as adverse events. So you get the shot, you know, you get a, you get a fever, you, you know, you get the shot and you have soreness and swelling, or, you know, sometimes there can be more serious events that occur. It kind of, and there's a temporal association with the vaccine. Uh, it, it's kind of typical adverse events that are known to occur with vaccines generally, you know, they're, so they're, they're kind of looking just for a, a, a kind of a narrow range of, uh, harms from the vaccine. There's a whole other a category of, of harms from vaccines that are kind of distinguished from adverse events. They're called nonspecific effects. And, and so a nonspecific effect is just basically just an unintended consequence of a vaccine, but it's distinguished from, you know, the, the adverse events in that they're really more long-term effects that you wouldn't really be able to anticipate, whereas adverse events are kind of, you know, you can anticipate them, the type of uh, harms that you would, might expect from a vaccine, but uh, that would be like a, like a sore arm or something like yeah, that. Or, exactly. Okay. Ex exactly. Whereas nonspecific effects could be something like what we see with the, with the uh, diphtheria tetanus and whole cell pertussis vaccine, which used to be used in the U S and other developed countries. It was switched to, to use a acellular pertussis uh, vaccine component, the DTAP, DTAP, as opposed to the DTP mm -hmm. vaccine. So the DTP vaccine is still one of the most widely used vaccines in the world. It's, it's used in developed countries or developing countries still. Um, and of course, the pre-licensure trials for that vaccine never 
examined mortality outcomes. They never looked at that. It was just assumed that, well, if the vaccines are effective at preventing the three target diseases, it's a combination vaccine, then therefore it will reduce mortality. That was the assumption. Well, researchers have studied that, particularly a group of a team of researchers from Denmark have, have studied that. Um, and all of the best scientific evidence that we have to date shows that that vaccine is associated with an increased rate of childhood mortality. So this is a non this is a detrimental non-specific effect of that vaccine where what appears to happen is that it, it detrimentally affects children's immune systems so that even though they might be protected from the target disease they're they become more vulnerable to other infections and they're dying from other causes. And so this is what I mean when I say that if you don't have that long if you're not looking at long-term effects and I'm talking about all health outcomes you know I'm I'm talking about looking at rates of allergies, asthma, autoimmune diseases, cancers, you know, fertility rates, uh, mortality, all-cause mortality. I mean, we have to look at the broad range of health outcomes if, if we want to, you know, see whether there's a causal association between vaccines and any of these, any negative health outcomes. Uh, of course, one of the problems is, you know, they don't do this type, they don't look for these types of things in pre-licensure trials. They do not. And then the vaccines go to market and they have post-marketing surveillance, which is not a substitute for randomized controlled trials. And, and, and then they say, but then they say, and then, you know, if anyone finds any signals, you know, if anyone finds an association between any kind of vaccine and the harm, and they say, oh, well, it's just an observational study. It, it, can't, it doesn't prove that there's a causal relationship, which is true. But then that's why we should be doing randomized controlled trials to look for these things. But then they say, well, it's already on the market. It's already standard of care. We can't do randomized controlled trials to look for long-term health outcomes now because it would be unethical to deprive right. people of the benefits of the vaccine. Just like it's unethical to ask people not to wear a mask. Right, right. Yeah, and so, of course, this is the fallacy of begging the question. It's a logical fallacy. You have to do the science if you want to get the answers to these things. So what do you think is the purpose of, um, well, let, let me, let me start by saying that I am not as vaccine skeptical or hesitant as some of the other people in our sphere. Um, but that's also a completely uneducated position. And, um, I do find it incredibly fishy that for instance, the pharmaceutical companies are not held accountable when side effects and adverse reactions do happen. Right. Um, from what I understand, there's just a huge budget for settling lawsuits that the government foots the bill. Yeah, no, what happened is in 1986, the, the government passed a law. Well, because throughout the early 1980s, um, the vaccine industry was really, I mean, manufacturers were going out of business. I mean, they were literally going mm -hmm. out of business. Uh, because of vaccine injury lawsuits, primarily is uh, um, related to the DTP vaccine, which was what was being used at the time, um, and also the the oral polio vaccine, which every every domestic case of polio in the U.S. after 1979 was caused by the the live virus vaccine. Gosh, um, so there was there were all lawsuits, um, and so. This threatened the problem for the government was that this threatened public policy because they, you know, public policy is they need to sustain and maintain high vaccination rates. That's a policy goal. And so that policy goal was threatened um, by the, the reduction in supply of <laughs> manufacturers going out of business. And so 
the government stepped in and, and interfered in the market to say, well, we're going to grant legal immunity to manufacturers of vaccines whose products are recommended for routine use in children by the CDC. They were granted broad legal immunity. At the same time, the, the, the law established what's called the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, the VICP, um, which is funded by an excise tax on every vaccine dose administered. And so the effect of the 1986 law was to effectively shift the financial burden for vaccine injuries away from the pharmaceutical industry and onto the taxpaying consumers. Hmm. So um, what's the what's the purpose of mass vaccination then? I mean, you know, there's plenty of there's plenty of literature saying that vaccines are safe and effective. And there's plenty of literature saying that there are severe adverse adverse reactions. Um, so why is there no moderate position on this? Because or is the moderate or is the moderate position skepticism without hysteria? The, the public vaccine policy is an extremist position. It is extreme mm -hmm. because what they're saying is that vaccination is a one size fits all solution to disease prevention. This is not what science tells us. This is completely contradicted by all the totality of scientific evidence, which tells us very clearly, I mean, it is just, this is just common sense, that it must be an individual choice because every single vaccine, you know, you hear this claim, this catchphrase, it's a marketing phrase, vaccines are safe and effective. This is an, this is an invalid generalization. Every single vaccine mm -hmm. has a different profile of safety. It has a different profile of effectiveness. Every single individual is at different risk of the, of the disease that a vaccine is intended to prevent, uh, protect against, and every individual is at a different risk of injury and being harmed by the vaccine. And so the idea that policymakers in, in, in state capitals or, you know, or in Washington, D.C. Can, can do uh, a, a population risk-benefit analysis for, you know, for every single individual in the country and just declare that for everyone with, you know, with a very narrow category of what they call contraindications, where it's like, you know, like, well, you practically have to have already had a very severe, you know, potentially fatal reaction to a vaccine in order to get, you know, a, a country, you know, a contraindicated exemption from, from a vaccine. And so they're not looking at the fact that here's a good example under the VICP, the U.S. government has acknowledged that vaccines can cause brain damage manifesting as symptoms of autism. This was conceded in a, the case of Hannah Poling, whose injury was encephal, uh, encephalopathy, which is, you know, any type of brain disease damage or disorder, um, including encephalitis, which is brain, brain inflammation. And so a CDC director went on TV at the time, went on CNN and said, well, we all know that vaccines can sometimes cause fevers and, and children with a mitochondrial disorder, you know, it can, it can cause some serious damage and it can, it can manifest as symptoms of autism. So this is acknowledged. This isn't even controversial. Um, and so, you know, you have this situation where we're being told they're safe and effective. But, you know, so the, but the point of that is that it, it, it's an individual risk benefit analysis, analysis that has to be done. And they don't know. This is one of the problems that they, there are genetic susceptibilities. You know, Hannah Poling had a mitochondrial disorder. So there, are, you know, there are genetic susceptibilities such as this that you know we have no idea like who's at risk and who isn't, and the science isn't there yet. We're, they're not able to say, well, 
you know, this person shouldn't get a vaccine because they have a genetic predisposition to vaccine injury. You know, they haven't done that research. They don't know that they're not able to say. And so it really is playing Russian roulette with our children. You know, this one size fits all policy. And this is why it absolutely has to be an individual choice because no bureaucrat in any capital has the requisite knowledge of the individual to be able to make a meaningful, to do a meaningful risk benefit analysis for that individual. Only the individual or the child's parents, perhaps working in consultation with that child's pediatrician, that child's doctor is able to, you know, has that requisite knowledge to be able to make that informed choice. The idea, that politicians, the idea that politicians have that knowledge is ludicrous. Do most pediatricians even know this? No, but there are, there are I think, a growing number of, of doctors who are aware. Good. You know, the people... People, you like to um, use the phrase vaccine risk aware. Um, you notice I'm using the phrase health freedom movement. Yeah. Um, you know, of course, the media slanders everyone as anti-vaxxers. Um, I'm, I'm not anti-vaccine. I, I don't have a problem with vaccines per se. My problem is is 100% with government policies. Right. So what do you think, um, like, obviously, you know, your standard run-of-the-mill politician doesn't know anything about this. They're following what their party tells them to do, or they're truly compassionate people and they think that vaccines are safe and effective because that's, like you said, the marketing slogan. But the the people who really are pushing this um, and have ulterior motives, what do you think those motives are? Well, um, yeah, it's... Uh getting into the question of ulterior motives. Yeah. Uh, first, let me preface my answer by saying this, you know, I, I don't, I don't take a conspiratorial view of, you know, anything vaccine related necessarily. Okay. I mean, oftentimes, again, we're called anti-vaxxers and, and we, the reason we don't, the reason we don't strictly comply with the CDC's schedule is because, you know, we believe in, we've been misinformed and we believe in conspiracy theories and all this. And I don't see it that way at all. I mean, I don't, I don't see any conspiracy behind it. I, I my view is totally reconcilable with policymakers and doctors and, and everyone involved having good intentions. My view is totally reconcilable with good intentions. So that said, uh, when, it, when we do get into ulterior motives, I mean, number one, there's the, there's the profit margin. Right. The industry wants to make money and they have, a, they have a great deal going on where they're not liable for injuries from their products. Their products are being, they are mandated. So they have a guaranteed demand because any parents who want to put their, have their child have a, receive a public education is required to have these vaccines. And it is becoming harder and harder for um, parents to be able to meaningfully exercise their right to informed consent. Parents are having to opt out rather than opting in to, to a mass vaccination program, which is all, just fundamentally a violation of, of the right to informed consent. Uh, for informed consent to happen, there, ha there has to be an absence of coercion. So in other words, informed consent isn't happening. It's not happening. There is no informed consent in this country. It doesn't exist. And this is the problem. I mean, the, our right to informed consent is, is, is being systematically violated. And this is, this is the problem that I've uh, you know, dedicated so much of my work to addressing and confronting is that it, this has to change. There has to be recognition that we all have a, right, a, a, a fundamental human right uh, to informed consent and that vaccination has to be based on an individual choice, based on an individual risk benefit analysis. This is the sensible moderate view.
and and the idea that well I mean, there, there are some extremists on the other side saying well no, nobody should get any vaccines and the vaccines should be outlawed and you know you, you do get some of that i mean true people who are really truly anti-vaccine but um but but then i mean the the, the most extremists are the ones who take the view that that mass vaccination is a one-size-fits-all solution this is an extremist view it's radical and it's dangerous well i tell you <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't nearly as exciting as Bill Gates wants to call the herd, so to speak. <laughs> no, but uh, <laughs> no. I'm but, sorry to disappoint. Yeah, I don't. I don't subscribe to that view. That's, I mean, I, don't get me wrong. Bill Gates is heavily involved in this, and he is definitely right. influential. Uh, but you know, I don't. There's this belief that he's like behind the whole pandemic, and he's behind the creation of the the, the virus in the lab. And uh, we can talk about that. I mean. I'm not convinced that this this virus is natural in origin. I mean, to me, the leading oh, hypothesis sure. is lab origin because I mean, we can talk about that if you want. But so I'm, yeah. not, I'm not dismissing that at all. I'm just saying I don't see that, Bill, you know, like there's this, you know, the, the pandemic, as it's called. I, right. I just think that well, just goes so far beyond the evidence. And accidents happen. I mean, it's I don't right. think that I don't think it's completely outlandish. And I think that the reaction to the the potential that this was you know, created in a lab and accidentally got out. I mean, you know, wh why is that not a possibility? Right. It's you know, widely dismissed as a conspiracy theory, but this is, this is so unserious. I mean, it, this, the idea that, that it has a lab origin is not a conspiracy theory. It is a legitimate scientific hypothesis that is well supported with circumstantial evidence and also supported with direct evidence. And I'll give you an example. So uh, it, I'm, I'm sure people are probably, listeners are probably pretty broadly aware of, you know, the fact that the Wuhan Institute of Virology is, you know, in, in Wuhan, they were doing uh, coronavirus research there, specifically doing gain of function research, gain of function research, meaning that they would take wild viruses and then, and then genetically modify them uh, adapt them in the lab in order to have uh, to be more virulent, more capable of infecting humans, for example. I mean, we know they were doing this research in this lab in Wuhan. We know it was funded by the National Institutes of Health. Anthony Fauci's NIAID funded an organization called EcoHealth Alliance, which in turn funneled uh, a portion of those funds to researchers at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So, you know, we have all this circumstantial evidence, you know, like the place where this outbreak happened you know, and it happened to be where they were doing this research. So there's all that, but but then you, there's direct evidence in the fact that, okay, when SARS, SARS, you know, in 2000, 2003, there was the SARS epidemic, the first novel coronavirus. And when it entered the human population, they were able to see it adapt to the new human host. Okay, so there was an intermediary, and they also found the intermediary species in that case. So, you know, coronaviruses are, the bats are the natural host uh, of coronaviruses, but you know, in this case, it was a uh, it was civets that they found that had uh, you know the, the virus had jumped to civets and then adapted to in civets to be capable of uh, infecting humans and, and it entered the human population. But what they found is that it it went through rapid mutations as it entered the human population because when it first started infecting humans, it wasn't well adapted for our species yet. And so the virus had to adapt to, to, to its new host. And so you can see that in the, in the evolutionary progress of, of the virus. That, that didn't happen with SARS-CoV-2. It was it's really interesting. There's a paper on this um, showing that, you know, it, it entered the human population already 
well adapted for the human host. And in fact, it's not well adapted for bat hosts. <laughs> There's another study on that. It's well adapted for, for infecting humans. And it entered the human population already adapted for the well adapted to the human host. This is really curious. This is this this suggests that uh, that it was not of zoonotic origin, that it was it was created in a lab. And of course, we have no direct evidence for this. I mean, to, right. to really prove this hypothesis, you'd need to do a forensic investigation in the lab, which of course is never going to happen. The World Health Organization has already completed its farcical so-called investigation, which was, you know, the guy from the U.S. on that team is the same guy. He's a, he's the, he's the owner of the. Um, EcoHealth Alliance. He's the guy who was funneling the money from from Anthony Fauci's NIAID to the Wuhan Institute, and he's been one of the guys out you know like out there from the beginning saying, "Oh, this idea that it, it has a lab origin is a conspiracy theory." He's like been behind you know this orchestrated media campaign to to get the media to to like you know adopt this kind of catchphrase that you know like oh it's a conspiracy theory like he's behind that he he was behind organizing orchestrating a letter into lancet very early on saying that oh you know this idea that it has lab origin is a conspiracy theory and, and this is the guy who was on the world health organization's so-called investigation team uh and, and and concluding that you know it's of zoonotic origin which they haven't proven they have not proven that it, 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 we still do not know and it's this is such an important question. We need to know. We need to know uh, if it came from the lab um, so, for obvious reasons. Are there any other organizations besides the WHO and uh, China's health organization, whatever that would be called, um, that could do a forensic investigation of this independent of? The not, not the type of forensic investigation I'm talking about where they go into the yeah. lab and they, they go through the records and they, they look at the the notes that were taken in there, uh, you know, they take samples and things and they, and they locate, you know, they find out exactly what they were working on. And uh, I don't think anyone else would be capable. There is another investigation. The Lancet has its own investigation commission. Huh? Guess who's also sitting on that commission? <laughs> the same guy, Peter Dadzak from EcoHealth Alliance is also a member of the, the Lancet investigation team. It's a joke. It's a joke. It's a farce. Wow. This is, these are not investigations. These are these are whitewash. These are they're, they're specifically designed to try to claim that you know that the lab origin is not plausible, but they can't. I mean, it, everyone can see that these are a joke. I mean, the only real reason that they wouldn't want the one it pointed at a lab is because that would look bad to China. Is that right? Or are there other reasons? It would also that... look bad for the U.S. So you have the two two of the most powerful oh, sure. governments on the, on the planet yeah. collaborating to whitewash potentially a, a you know, a, a lab-created pandemic. You th I mean, even, I, I maybe, maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just completely naive, but you would think that, you know, we made a mistake would, <laughs> would cover this because of all the other stuff that's come after it. I don't know. And I mean, you know, even if, even if the U S funded it, you could still blame it on the Chinese scientists, which uh, I know Trump would be, would have been eager to do that. I, I don't know about China Joe, but. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Trump also ended the, um, you know, the, the funding of gain of uh, function research. Right. Well, it was it was it was paused under Obama, and then 
it, it was a return. I think Trump actually, I think it was actually under Trump that it, it, it went back, you know, that NIH started funding again, gain of function research. But then when he found out about the funding of the Wuhan lab, he ended the, he ended the funding, not of gain of function research generally, but of, um, of Eco Health Alliance. He cut off the funding mm-hmm. for Eco Health. Um, but I think that's also been reinstated since. That's interesting to know. Is uh, do you think that the mass hysteria being spread by the establishment bureaucrats and media is retaliatory for that? What do you mean? Well, I mean, if he if he defunded uh, an organization that oh, yeah. is so tied to Dr. Fauci at Al. Well, it, yeah, no, there's, there's no question that this whole debate has been totally politicized. And so because sure, Trump yeah. has kind of come out saying, you know, like he came out early on saying that, you know, suggesting the possibility of, of the Chinese having created it, Chinese researchers having created it in the lab. And, and this was the reason for cutting off the funding. Um, and yeah, and so anything Trump touches is automatically, you know, if Trump did it, it's bad and in and, 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 if, if Trump believes this, then it's wrong. And, you know, there's this kind of just politicization in terms of the coverage, uh, which is really unfortunate because it's not as though, again, you know, this is a leg- the, the, the idea of lab origin is a legitimate scientific hypothesis. And so mm-hmm. the media to kind of take it as like, oh, this is just a Trump conspiracy theory or something. And that really has been a, largely the approach that, you know, journalists have taken in the mainstream media. Uh, and so they just kind of dismiss it as something related to Trump. And it's, this is absurd. This has gotten the politics of medicine, which, you know, I mean, I'm guessing the NIH and the CDC and the WHO have always been political organizations and we just didn't know about it. Look, I'm, I'm gay. And I was a kid in the nineties when HIV was, I mean, you know, it was just part of sex ed class that you learned about HIV. Um, even though the vast majority of the, kids in the classes were at absolutely no risk because it's like, you know, I mean, like they were saying in the eighties, it's, it is a gay plague. Like, I mean, <laughs> straight people just really didn't get HIV transmitted sexually very often. Um, but we don't know that because the, what, what is the established narrative is never really corrected. It's just not reported on anymore eventually. Um, but this has been huge and it's got a lot of people um, coming to understand that, Hey, something fishy is going on in our medical establishment. Well, it's Do you think- really broken through into the mainstream. I want to say this, that, um, you know, the idea of lab origin it, for, for most of last year, it was like, this was just like, you couldn't talk about it. And right. you know, anytime it came up, it was a conspiracy theory, but I mean, it's really, there's been some pretty major mainstream media breakthroughs in this wall, wall street journal had a great piece by Alina Chan on it. Uh, the New York Post did a piece on it. The, the New York, I think New York Magazine, the Intelligencer had a piece on it uh, saying like, look, this is, we have to take this seriously. This is, a, this is not some kind of like loony conspiracy theory. There's, there's legitimate reasons to believe that it may have originated in the, in the lab. And so we need to have a serious investigation. And so this is kind of, kind of broken through into the mainstream discourse. Um, so it's a positive development. Yeah, I think so too. I think, and, and I think that the more that the just bumbling, you know, politicization of medicine, th- this could be, this could end up being a pretty good thing. Um, I think, and I, I think that the narrative, it wasn't so much about Trump. I mean, it was a worldwide thing um, against populism. And even like, you know, 
the person who was considered the UK's Trump, Boris Johnson, has really gotten on board with it. Uh, so, you know, I mean, I feel like in the long run, the more that this is exposed, and I, you know, I mean, Andrew Cuomo in New York and Gavin Newsom in California are both under fire for their uh, handling of this. Newsom is, he's very, very likely to be recalled or maybe not very, very likely, but, you know, likely. Um, the Democrats in New York are turning on Cuomo. Do you think that the pendulum is going to swing in the other direction? Or are these just are these just sacrificial lambs to uh, make it look like the pendulum is swinging in the other direction and reality will mm, continue that's an pace? interesting question. I... I'd like, hopefully this isn't wishful thinking. I think the pendulum is going to swing. If not, if it's not already, I think it's going to, because I think an awakening is inevitable. You know, I mean, there's already been a huge proportion of the population who's been on to, you know, what's been happening and, and awake to it and in, in speaking out against authoritarian policies. Um, it was sad to see so many people just lay down their rights and surrender their liberty and just say, okay, we're just going to do what our overlords tell us to do unthinkingly and submissively and uncritically. Um, that was really discouraging, but I, I think, I think that's been shifting and I think it, I think it's going to start accelerating because I think people are going to just awaken to the realization that, you know, everything that what they've been telling us from the beginning is just they, they haven't been honest. You know, like the way Cuomo was upheld as a hero. They gave him an I mean, the guy, the guy literally with the highest per capita mortality, rate, I think, in the world. Because if someone correct me if I'm wrong on that, but I, I think that's that's the case is that, you know, one of the worst mortality outcomes, not just in the U.S., but I think on the planet and. and you know, the, the lockdown measures did nothing to protect those at greatest risk. And this is, of course, what, you know, people like me have been advocating, the, the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration saying, like, we need to have focused protection. We need to allow people who are at low, very low risk to get on with their lives and keep the economy functioning and keep putting food on the, their table for their families and keep being able to pay the bills and keep a roof over their families' heads. And they, let them go out and do that. That will also, at the same time, a benefit of that will be, it will be herd immunity isn't the goal, it's not the policy, it's not the strategy, but that's an outcome of allowing people to have to live their lives. And then, and then in, a, in short time, you'll be able to allow the, the elderly at high at risk population to come out of their isolation too, because we'll have, we'll have the natural herd immunity. I mean, this is what makes sense. This is what has always made sense from the beginning. This is what the pandemic planning prior to this pandemic said needs to happen. I mean, you look at the World Health Organization's um, pandemic uh, planning guidance from before this pandemic, they, they, weren't, they weren't advocating like quarantining healthy people. They said not to do that. I mean, you can go, you can go through their pandemic. I mean, Sweden was the country that followed the, the you know, decades mm -hmm. of, of pandemic planning guidance. Sweden's not the one that performed a mass experiment on their population. Every other lockdown country is the one that performed a mass experiment on their populations by straying from the established science. And I think I think people are, you know, kind of awakening to this, what's happened, and, and that they implemented these policies with no science to support it whatsoever. 
And uh, so, apart apart from you know violating fundamental human rights and in our liberties, um, you know, just from in terms of the goal, like they're 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 doing these measures claiming to save lives, but all they're really doing is prolonging the pandemic and worsening the outcome in the long run. I mean, it's much harder to keep. You know, when they say, well, focus protection is impossible, you know, this criticism of the Great Barrington Declaration right. is saying, well, it's not it's not feasible. Well, it, it might be worth trying. I think it's feasible. I and mean, to me, it makes sense because <clears throat> it's not feasible under their policies because you can't indefinitely keep the whole population under lockdown and can keep elderly people in isolation indefinitely. I mean, it, it, they don't have that much long to a lot of them don't have much long mm-hmm. life left in them anyways. And, you know, they're lose they're losing the quality years, whatever quality is remaining in their life, they're losing that or stealing that from them. And that's, that's terrible. And that's a crime, I think. And uh, because if, if the pandemic was simply allowed to run its course, and I don't mean, you know, like make no effort to, to reduce transmission, we could still make efforts to reduce transmission, you know, get social distancing makes sense. Masks in certain situations make sense. You know, we could do things to try to, to pre- protect one another and reduce transmission. Um, but if the pandemic was allowed to run its course with people behaving socially in a socially responsible manner, um, you know, we, we would we would reach the herd immunity threshold and then the people in isolation could come out. Whereas, you know, when you try to just do this mass quarantine of all healthy people type of approach, uh, you know, you're all you're really doing is prolonging the inevitable. And then you're having worse outcomes in, in the long run because you're not specifically because you're not protecting those people at highest risk. And we see this. It brings me back to my point about Cuomo. So it's come out now that um, they were apparently from <laughs> apparently they were concealing information what they were reporting the numbers of deaths from nursing care homes and they weren't including uh, long-term care residents who died at the hospital. And so when you count the nursing home residents who, who were at the hospital when they died, uh, the numbers are far greater evidently is the scandal that's uh, come to light. Um, and so, you know, complete and total failure. I mean, the lockdowns did nothing to protect those at highest risk. And not only that, but it, uh, Jeffrey Tucker actually has a really good article on this. It creates a whole like underclass of people. I mean, the the wage workers at the, at the meatpacking plants and the grocery stores and the places that weren't shut down um, had to bear a huge brunt of this pandemic in addition to the old people and prisoners and things like that who are already just you know inside of institutions and can't really get out um yeah, it's, it's absolutely discriminatory i mean there are people who have you know it's easy for them to live on their savings they're wealthy it's easy for them to work from home and have you know work with zoom meetings or whatever a lot of people you know, with, in low-income families, they don't have these same privileges. They don't have these same opportunities. They don't have the same ease of just kind of like sitting at home during lockdown and, and you know, not not getting on with their lives, not not going to their jobs, and or they're they're considered essential workers, and so they're the ones out there. Well, you know, all the the, the upper class white guys are sitting at home, you know. <laughs> like their tea and, and, and working from the internet yeah starting podcasts i mean <laughs> disproportionately black and and you know um you know underprivileged people out there being the ones kind of building up herd immunity for everyone else i mean it's it, it really is discriminatory for real all right jeremy i think that's a great place to end it um Thank you so much for coming today. Why don't you plug everything that people should uh, should access in order to follow you, uh, including the best newsletter in the business? 
Yeah, just head to jeremyrhammond.com and you'll see sign up forms there to get on my newsletter. You'll be able to download a, a report, five horrifying facts about the FDA vaccine approval process, uh, exclusive report for my subscribers. I wrote that before the pandemic. It's, it's highly relevant for COVID-19 vaccines. Um, so yeah, go to jeremyrhammond.com, get on my newsletter. It's the best way to stay updated with my work. I'm also on social, but you can find all of my social accounts once you're on my newsletter. So cool. Thanks a lot. Thank you. All right. Thanks again to Jeremy for joining me today. And thank you for listening today. If you have not yet subscribed, make sure you hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening to the show. Uh, and if you are interested in receiving my written content along with email updates for every episode that I publish, head over to blackbird.substack.com where you can sign up for either the free subscription or if you're interested in supporting me in my work for the paid subscription as well. And with that, I will see you on the next episode of Blackbird. And of course, until then, live free.